welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, this is the first episode of season five of Gomology, and uh, for this week I have a special guest who is also in the sort of content and journalism sphere. Coming in from Ireland, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Eva Long. I'm an artist and a writer based in Ireland, and thank you so much for the opportunity to speak on your podcast. I came across you as a writer about slow fashion. Shall we sort of loop back to the beginning and you can tell me a bit about how did that come about? Okay. Well, I think for uh, for me and for most people, my interest in slow fashion began as a consumer. Uh, when I was in college, I was um, you know shopping at the kind of big brand stores and started to realize that there were a lot of other people on the streets wearing the same clothes. And uh, then I turned to vintage clothing and, uh, you know, trying to find unique pieces and everything. And in the process of researching vintage clothing and stuff, I, I guess I uh, got an appreciation for for really wonderful brands, you know, that manufactured um, in an ethical way. And that led me to um, the world of modern slow fashion designers. And uh, it eventually turned into... Um, a Substack or a blog, as most people would call it, and uh, turned into an email newsletter, and uh, now it's a magazine. So, were you studying fashion or something else? No, I was studying medicine. <laughs> so, from medicine to vintage clothing and slow fashion, was that just following your heart, or was it a conscious random move? Um, yeah, I suppose you could say it was definitely following my heart. Um, I had a wonderful time in medicine and, uh, I learned a lot of skills, which I use every day now, you know, interviewing people in depth, uh, with, with confidentiality and, um, really listening to what people are saying and taking, uh, taking notes afterwards. And let me tell you, that turned out to be pretty handy working as, working as a writer. Um, but yeah, I, I always had an interest in art and in fashion and in writing. I wrote throughout my time in medical school. And, uh, once I graduated, I, uh, decided to follow my heart and take a chance and, uh, explore a more artistic path. So writing is now your full-time job. Yeah. So you you went from the sort of big brands, uh, high streets, fast fashion things, mm-hmm. into the vintage world. Was it the quality of the old brands you were liking there, or was it the fact that you could find cheap new stuff? Hmm. I think it was mostly quality, um, but it it was also the style. You know, as I as I later found out when I looked into fast fashion, there's a reason why every piece of clothing you see from fast fashion looks the same, um, because they're often um, cut in exactly the same way and simply have an embellishment or a print or something to differentiate them. The clothes are fundamentally the same. So to look for more um, more unique pieces to express, I guess, your individuality and your style. Um, and particularly as a college student, you end up looking at uh, vintage stores and not just vintage fast fashion, but also sort of, uh, you know, looking maybe aspirationally at vintage couture and stuff like that. The world of vintage is a, well, a mixed bag, so to speak. Um, You have some people who talk about vintage as the sort of 1930s uh, quality Mm. stuff, which I never seem to find. (laughs) I mean, around these parts, vintage is, it's 90s, garbage really um, yeah. just cut price and ready used 
Yeah, that's. I guess that's one of the strange things that has happened over the last five to ten years. Like what what uh, myself and my parents would call vintage is not what other people are calling vintage at the moment. So yeah, when I'm talking about vintage, I'm talking about quality stuff from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and you know, a lot of the stuff that's in vintage stores in Ireland is not from Ireland. It's it's imported from from the U.S. Um, the clothes in Ireland don't generally tend to last that long due to the climate, but um, yeah. That's strange. Is that because they're speciality vintage shops uh, sort of importing cool American stuff? Because yeah. we seem to find quite a lot of Eastern European stuff in the charity shops here, which yeah. is kind of strange because it's never sold here. And we export most of the stuff that is donated to charity to Eastern Europe. So I don't know if they have some sort of exchange mechanism. <laughs> interesting, interesting, yeah. And uh, I guess a lot of the kind of – there's been an explosion of sort of secondhand shops and sort of what people are now calling vintage stores. And, and I fully support that, and there are some beautiful pieces in there. However, um, a lot of it is fast fashion. Mm. It's uh, It's one of those – cases where a word has different meanings depending on who uses it so vintage can have many meanings it can be last week's fast fashion or some genuinely old stuff but slow fashion how would you define that yeah well slow fashion was a term that was coined by a lady called kate fletcher at the center for sustainable fashion and uh, she you know came up with this idea based on the um the idea of slow food that people were talking a lot about 15 or 20 years ago. Um, it was the idea that the clothing would be manufactured in a way which was, uh, ethical. Um, it, uh, you know, looking at ethical wages, ethical manufacturing, and also, um, I suppose in a bizarre way, it's a bizarre way to market it, but the difference between ethical fashion and slow fashion is that, uh, slow fashion promotes actually the reduction in consumption as well. Which is very interesting, but it's it's again it's one of those kind of niche, uh, you know, descriptions of of a uh, of an area. Yeah, because it does get complicated. You mentioned ethical fashion, which I would have said, well, isn't that the same thing? And then you mix a sprinkling of sustainability into it as well. And I think most people at that point are starting to uh, fall off, really. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the you know slow fashion designers I talk to actually avoid using the word sustainable. You know, some of them even say on their websites, you know, we are not a sustainable brand to distance themselves um, from the greenwashing and the confusion because it's it's simply better to say this is slow fashion. It's manufactured locally in an ethical way with the least amount of harm possible to the planet, and we would like you to purchase this in a very mindful considerate way and keep it as an heirloom essentially yes yes i mean that echoes something i've been thinking about mention the good points about what you're doing mm -hmm. and don't greenwash it like h&m would say typically then oh we're really sustainable trust us which is totally meaningless but if mm -hmm. they said we were making it in this factory we're paying well we're not polluting doing everything ethically of cloths are from here and there and the so-and-so. I mean, you could actually compare stuff and it would be a meaningful description. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're looking for in brands. And I think uh, that really is the Achilles heel of fast fashion is their lack of transparency. And I think that's an area where slow fashion and, uh, you know, small studios need to be really proactive in showing people 
um, their sources, how they manufacture and, uh, the way they do things, because that's an area that these big brands simply cannot compete, you know? Do you think it's a case of can't or won't? Because I often see that you have a small one person brand who has mm -hmm. such control over what they're doing. Their fabrics are this and that, and they're doing it like that. And they're, well, at least trying to pay themselves a, a mm -hmm. proper wage. And you think that's that one person doing everything as right as they possibly can. And then you've got this huge company with thousands of employees and they say, well, you know, it's all so complicated. We just can't do it. Which makes me mm. think, uh, well, you're really saying you won't do it. Mm. Well, I suppose it, you know, I haven't worked in the fast fashion industry, but I've talked to a lot of people who have. And, you know, of course, you have to make allowances for these behemoth companies and these ridiculous structures that develop within these multinational companies. But the reality is that they know they have a problem. That's why they're engaged in greenwashing. And if they wanted to make systemic change, if they wanted to pay their workers, and if they wanted to be transparent with their customers, they would. So, Yes, they won't, but also they can't because the truth of the matter is so horrendous that it's a pure disaster and they know that. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it is it is their business model and that is yeah. how things are done. Um, I was speaking to Becky early uh, at the end of last season and I, we got on to the fact that why can't you just pay your workers in Asia a proper wage? She said, but you can't because that's how it works. I was like, Okay, so it's broken, but we can't fix it. Nope. That's that's how it is. Hmm. That's quite an interesting response. I guess, you know, that's why I focus on brands in Ireland where I can I can go, I can interview them, I can see their studios and and uh you know, there's a lot more traceability. Um yeah, that that's a very interesting point. They can't. <laughs> that's just that, the way things is... are done. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess in a way, people like us, you know, if you're interested in slow fashion and you're spending considerable time researching it, I guess you're doing that out of the belief that things can be done in a different way, you know? I don't know if it's a belief, but it's at least a hope. Mm. And if we give up hope, what do we have left? <laughs> so, uh, well, I, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? There's a lot of talk about um, we can't do anything. And then there's a lot of talk about if everyone just did a little bit, everyone just was a little more conscious, kept things mm -hmm. a little longer, bought a little better, then we could make change. Uh, and you just have to believe in that or else not. But I'd like to hear more about uh, your travels around Ireland and what you discover. Mm, all right. Um, so for the last couple of months, I have been... Uh, interviewing a lot of slow fashion designers, uh, academics who are researching uh, slow fashion, and farmers and producers who are actually producing fibers within Ireland. And it has been a, a whirlwind of education, let me tell you. And um, what have I found? Well, there are numerous stories to uncover, I suppose. There's, um, you know, we could talk about the story of Irish wool. Uh, we could talk about the story of Irish linen. And we could talk about the, the numerous small brands which have popped up, which I believe are uh, truly engaged in producing slow fashion in Ireland. Okay, let's start with wool. And then okay. work our way. Because <laughs> Irish yeah. wool isn't something you hear that much about. I mean, Donegal Tweed is, is well known. Yeah, yeah. Historically, I, I suppose Donegal Tweed is, is sort of a 
a, uh, a tweed which is recognized around the world and, and for good reason. It's, it's really beautiful. Well, the story of Irish wool essentially, um, could be summarized in that there's a reason you don't hear that much about it. And the reason is that Irish wool has seen a number of collapses over the last century and, and even before that, um, the woolen clothing which is sold in Ireland is not made using Irish wool, um, but Ireland still has a lot of sheep. And growing up in Ireland, I uh, I did realise that there was a slight problem there. If we're buying, uh, you know, knitted mittens in Donegal, why is it not using Donegal sheep's wool? There are two reasons for that, really. Um, one of the reasons is that this is what every clothing designer will tell you, is that the Irish wool, which is currently being produced, and the breeds which are being uh, grown in Ireland, the wool produced is simply too rough for uh, clothing. And that, and that is true uh, for a lot of the breeds which are in Ireland. Um, historically, their wool was used for carpets. And unfortunately, the carpet industry, uh, let's say, packed their bags in the late 70s and 80s in Ireland. It was a huge employer. And uh, we're still producing wool, but there's no industry necessarily to use it. So what's happening to that wool? Well, we have about 3.5 million sheep in Ireland and about 5 million sheep if you include Northern Ireland. And uh, if you take each sheep, and this is an average, which produces, say, 3 to 5 kilograms of wool a year, uh, that wool is, if it is collected, it is exported, uh, sent to Britain to be scoured because we don't have any scouring plants in Ireland at the moment. And it is exported to Asia, supposedly to make carpets. Um, that's the official story. I haven't really been able to find any carpets which use Irish wool, which have been exported, but I'll, you know, I'll get back to you on that one. It's still a, it's still an evolving story. Um, there are a good few breeds of sheep in Ireland, which are producing really beautiful wool. And one of them is the native uh, breed, which is called the Galway sheep. And, you know, the Galway sheep and a lot of these smaller breeds are uh, essentially kept alive by hobbyists. So smaller farmers and, and people who really care about the breed and who are passionate about keeping uh, their, their flocks going. And um, about two years ago, during the pandemic, a lady named Blotna Gallagher uh, had just completed a master's in agricultural innovation. And uh, she was looking at the problem of Irish wool. Uh, why is the price paid to farmers so low when we are importing wool to be used, uh, you know, in our clothing and in our carpets? And she essentially came to the conclusion that the co-op model, which is farmers, you know, grouping together, would be the way to move forward. So she set up a co-op with herself and several other uh, sheep farmers based around Galway. And uh, they essentially uh, managed to get breed-specific wool. So they managed to get 5,000 kilograms of uh, wool just from this native breed of sheep. And they managed to sell it to one of the mills here in Ireland, Donegal Yarns, for 12 times the market price. Oh. Yeah. Which means which it is, was actually worth something, whereas so much wool now is yeah. almost worthless. Yeah. So with that, with that win, shall we say, under under their wing, uh, the Galway Wool Co-op has uh, continued to to approach and to find buyers who want to use um, Irish-grown wool. 
And this is an important distinction uh, because a lot of what is sold to the producer as, or sold, I'm sorry, to the consumer as Irish wool is wool which is milled in Ireland. Ireland still has a good few uh, woolen mills which are producing uh, tweeds, uh, knitting yarn, so forth, and uh, it's milled in Ireland, but the wool is not actually grown in Ireland. So that's an important distinction which the Galway Wool Co-op and other people who are passionate about this are, are trying to point out to consumers. Um, I guess one of the, you know, this is a big positive step to prove to farmers and to others that that this wool does have value and that the story of, you know, native locally grown wool is appealing to designers. There has been a lot of pushback because a lot of designers still, um, you know, believe in the, the very rough wool produced by a large amount of breeds in Ireland and simply refuse to use it. That is absolutely their prerogative. But I have recently been talking to, um, several farmers and producers who are in the process of, um, you know, building flocks which produce the finest wool, which was historically used, you know, in Britain for the finest knitwear, and also producing uh, farm-specific wool and f even farm-specific blends. So we're actually getting down to the stage where, you know, using very small mills, you can actually produce um, knitting yarn, for instance, which comes solely from one farm, is fully traceable. And within that, you have a lot of freedom to experiment with natural dyeing, with adding blends of, say, alpaca yarn. And there are a good few herds of alpacas in Ireland. And um, so I'm really interested in pursuing that because I think that would be a really special product, which is farm specific. And yeah, that's something as a consumer I want to use and I want to see clothing made out of it as well. It is tricky, the bit about how transparent and how traceable things are, because I find myself utterly fascinated by it. I mean, if you can tell me that this sweater is knitted from wool that came from those sheep at this little farm in Ireland, yeah. it was dyed by this little old lady in a tub. Mm. I won't talk about the dye-fixing methods, if they were traditional or not. <laughs> But, but all that fascinates me totally. But I, I think there are a lot of people who don't even think along those lines at all. But maybe they too could be intrigued by the stories if they are told. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping anyways. Because, um, you know, if you think of anything, well, really anything you've bought, you know, in your lifetime in some way, uh, you identified with the story, you know, at the, the story is the most important thing. And I think Irish wool has, you know, it has an incredible story. And yes, it is a challenge to, to try to communicate the value that is within local produce. Uh, but I believe particularly in the current times that we're in that people are going to be a lot more open to local produce and seeing the value in, uh, keeping jobs in local communities. Something I'm just wondering on a personal level here. Now, obviously, the sheep that are normally bred in Ireland, the ones with the really rough wool, they will be bred for meat. But say a Galway sheep, will that have the same opportunities for meat production as well? Or is that strictly for the wool then? Um, yeah, well, that's how we got to uh, to where we are Um Galway, Galway sheep, for the most part, are, are bred for their wool. And uh, 
they obviously the flock, you know, the farmers and producers will work on the existing flocks and will produce finer and finer yarns as interest develops in that. Um, and the the idea and the goal of this is to to inform sheep farmers that the market is there for wool, that wool is not simply a byproduct, and that it is an option to raise sheep purely for wool production. And with that sort of win that the Galway Wool Co-op was able to get, you can say to farmers, okay, this is economically viable uh, without the assistance of grants and so forth. Mm. Now, there are a lot of challenges to farming in Ireland at the moment. You know, the the age group which is in it is rapidly aging. Um, it is difficult to attract a, a younger uh, audience of, of farmers who, you know, are, want to live that lifestyle and uh, and who are able to afford to remain on the land. Uh, the future of you know grants and government support for you know essentially subsistence farming is in doubt. Will they be there in twenty years? I don't know. You know how how what how can you say you know how can you promise a future to to a young farmer with that? However, the young farmers who I have been in contact with are taking a far more entrepreneurial uh, look at their future, and they are going to create um, world-class products which which grab the attention of, uh, I think, some, some very interesting fashion houses at a certain stage. That is a very interesting aspect, the fact that the people traditionally working in that area are becoming very old, and that's something you mm. – I keep hearing it time after time – that uh, well, we're still at it, but you know everyone's pretty old now, and uh, yeah. So you really need young people with uh, a lot of enthusiasm and perhaps a willingness not to become very wealthy. Well, an openness uh, to at least initially um, making huge investments in your enterprise, you know, and particularly with. Um, you know, the issues caused by Brexit and everything. It, it now takes six to nine months to import a sheep from the UK. You know, it's become, <laughs> it's becoming increasingly ridiculous, but well, yeah. <laughs> you could swim and walk there much quicker. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yes, there are challenges and, and we are, we are open about that. However, one of the most important things to do in the face of those challenges is to build a community of people who have knowledge, who you can consult and who you can ring at any time of the day. And from what I've encountered, there is a lot of help available uh, from your local community and from people who are experts in this field. I have been uh, I have been following the developments in the communities there, and that is very encouraging because not only is it communities built on enthusiasm, knowledge, and will to uh, to do good, but it's also for a large part not about making lots of money. Yeah, yeah, but I think. Um you know, if you have the strength of a community, money isn't so important. I think if you go into something with the expectation of making lots of money, you're not going to be focusing maybe on the right things. Mm, yeah, yeah, perhaps. But I mean, you know, a lot of the status symbols that we look to acquire, you know, through earning lots and lots of money can be easily provided by an intact community. So you know, if you have the kind of 
local support and, you know, if there's someone you can ring who has been down this path before and who has business experience, for example, well, then maybe you don't need to hire a business coach. You know, mm -hmm. you can source a lot of things within the community. And that, I think that is what we're trying to establish here in Ireland, that there would be a, a knowledge base and a lot of people whose doors are open to helping younger people who want to get involved. Mm. So we're all having a bit of a up and down history in Ireland, Mm -hmm. um, linen has always been a strong fibre of Ireland, I think. I know I have some Irish linen downstairs. When did you buy it? Must be about 10 years ago, maybe. Mm, it's not Irish linen. Oh, oh no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tell yeah. me more. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, I was up at the only farm in on the island of Ireland, which is growing flax uh, for linen production. And there are quite a few mills uh, which are producing Irish linen. The flax itself, which they're using, is grown in France and Belgium and in other places in Europe. Uh, yeah, and it is sold as Irish linen. It's woven in Ireland and it is, you know, in the style of traditional Irish linen, but the flax itself is not grown in Ireland. So, I didn't know this until quite recently. And when I went up to uh, Northern Ireland to, to uh, actually harvest flax, I actually got a chance to, uh, to go and pick flax with the, <laughs> with the owners of the farm. I had a great, great time. But they are, um, the name of the place is uh, Mallon Linen, and that's their surname, Charlie Mallon and Helen Keyes. They're a couple who are based in uh, County Tyrone in Northern Ireland. And, uh, Charlie is a sculptor and uh, was making these small pieces and Helen wanted to source Irish linen bags to, to place the pieces in to, to, you know, mail them out to customers. And uh, they were shocked to find out there was actually no Irish linen available. So they knew that flax was historically grown on their farm. Northern Ireland has a very long history of flax production and, uh, they decided to start planting flax. So they got the seeds from uh, the Netherlands. I think they imported uh, quite a bit of seed, which has um, lasted them, I think, for the last three or four years. And since then, they have been on a journey of really relearning uh, flax production. They uh, are planting a few acres at a time, and they're doing it by hand. So this is hand-sown and hand harvested as well, which is obviously quite labor intensive where it's farmed in, in Europe. You know, obviously it's mechanical. Um, you know, when I was up there, I realized, um, just how beautiful, you know, real Irish linen can be. They had a few samples which, uh, had been made locally. Uh, it had been hand spun and hand woven. And this, this product is incredibly beautiful. Um, now obviously that is not really sustainable in, in terms of a final price per meter. If you were to continue with that hand spinning and hand weaving, it would be about 400 pounds or more per meter of linen, which is quite expensive. Um, so the, the main problem in uh, linen production from this farm is spinning. And they're looking at various ways to get around that with uh, commercial spinning in other countries or indeed using uh, the flax fibers in sort of, you know, other industrial applications where it doesn't actually require spinning. However, 
even at this somewhat early stage, they have attracted a lot of attention uh, from some rather interesting people. And I'm proud to say <laughs> I actually stood in the same field as Sarah Burton, so <laughs> from Alexander McQueen, you know. Yeah, they took a trip. They took a few limos out to the farm, and uh, there, this uh, Malin Linen has a, a long list of customers who see value in Irish linen and who very much want to be part of Irish-grown linen. You know, I'm so disappointed to hear that Irish linen wouldn't be have been fully Irish linen, um, and it strikes me that it's just another one of these cases where you're sort of led to think something is something because some of the details have been omitted. Uh, another one recently was uh, indigo dye. When I hear someone say, oh, it's real indigo dye, I think, well, that's indigo dye from a plant. But no, that's a chemical, a chemically similar or exact replacement dye, but it has nothing to do with the plant. It just it's the same colour. Uh, but everyone who hears real indigo will think, oh, but it's the plant. Of course it is. Yes. Mm, I know. And it's actually getting to the stage where, you know, even, you know, as the magical conscious consumer that everyone assumes will be buying their products, you would almost, this would almost have to be your full-time job researching, you know, before you purchase. It's gotten to this level. And I suppose this is why uh, people are interested in, uh, in the things that you and I are doing, because there is a real gap in the market for uh, people who who want to simply listen to a podcast or or read an article rather than go and ring up the founder of the company. You know, <laughs> I mean, imagine companies would be quite annoyed after a while. <laughs> yeah. Just people calling them up. Yeah, so and so said they're using your fabrics. Can you tell us more about that? What are the dyes? What the yeah, yeah, and and I guess in another way we uh, we have to kind of combat that is to to get past the kind of protectiveness that historically a lot of uh, brands and you know artists may have about um, you know sources of fabric and stuff like that. You know, I think the more transparent you are, uh, the better. Everyone wins if if we can uh, if we can find out your um, chain of production essentially. I think the industry in general has had a huge problem over the years with um, transparency or just general honesty, maybe just lying by omission. I mean, you have uh, fabric suppliers in the UK where people refer to them in a way that it sort of seems like they make the fabrics in the UK, but really they're just supplied from a warehouse there. Mm -hmm. Um so are they lying because they've worded it in a specially sneaky way to make you think it's so? Or to me, it's just plain dishonest and I get really annoyed. <laughs> but of course, most people don't care. So. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, um, in a lot of ways, that sort of, you know, surface level information, it works. And that's why we've gotten to the place where we are, you know, for, for a lot of consumers who either don't care or, you know, to be totally fair to them, don't have time to explore these sort of brands. But, you know, I also have sort of mixed feelings about this because, you know, for instance, uh, brands which are weaving linen in Ireland are providing our jobs and they are maintaining the knowledge that we will absolutely need to produce Irish grown produce. And we absolutely need to work with the remaining mills and, uh, get them interested in it, reintroduce them to, um, 
products which are grown in Ireland, essentially. That is a very, very valid point, isn't it? I mean, jobs. Yeah. I remember visiting the, the Harris Tweed industry on the Hebrides, and it just struck me that without the Harris Tweed industry, there would be very, very few jobs around there. But what with the weavers, the mills, the people driving stuff around, the shops, I mean, there was actually a, <laughs> a huge part of working life on the Hebrides was Harris Tweed. Yeah, and I'd absolutely love to uh, to visit the Hebrides at some stage. But Harris Tweed is quite interesting because, um, you know, it says in their sort of mission statement that, um, you know, they they won't mechanize the weaving and stuff like that. So that production of Harris Tweed is is extremely labor intensive, and it has retained a huge amount of jobs. And I mean, I guess the same could be said in Donegal. There are a lot of excellent. Um, you know, weavers and uh, mills which are left, which provide a lot of jobs. And, you know, I fully support what they're doing. And uh, they provide a really interesting um, aspect to the local community, I suppose, in a real way. They bring color, you know, and I mean that literally, you know, they produce <laughs> really beautiful things which are made in Ireland. And I absolutely support that. If we can get Irish wool to the point where these, you know, blankets and tweeds are also made using Irish wool, that would be a fantastic win. But in the meantime, I absolutely support Made in Ireland. It's uh, it's quite stunning the amount of fibres that are travelling around the world all the time from here to there. The fact that you can't scour, i.e. wash your wool in Ireland is tragic. Um, when I was talking to Hewitt's Denim, who were weaving denim in Lancashire, it had to be sent mm. to Italy to be finished, mm. which again is bonkers. And we, we talk about sustainability, and mm. <laughs> having these big rolls of fabric or big bales <laughs> of wool shipped mm. every which way. Uh, I mean, all these things used to be handled nearby handled locally. Yes, that is true, but there are also disadvantages uh, to that sort of local production as much as I'd love to uh, support it in a sort of a romantic way and in terms of providing jobs. The fact is that a lot of uh, fabric production, uh, wool scouring to a certain degree, and, you know, leather production involves really toxic chemicals and has for a long time. You know, like I know in Donegal, there are still sites of tanneries which are terribly contaminated the tannery yeah. has been gone for a hundred years and that bay is still contaminated right. you know so that is sort of the point of uh some of the woolen mills here in ireland is do we really want the scouring uh facilities in ireland my answer would be yes let's get the best technology possible if you you know get into the real nitty-gritty of the process of scouring there are ways of supposedly, you know, in theory and in research anyways, uh, using dry scouring methods, using bentonite clay to draw out uh, the contaminants and the lanolin. The lanolin itself as, you know, the greasy component of wool, yeah. um, it, it does have value. It's used in cosmetics. It has, you know, a lot of different applications. And that is something which is, you know, simply seen to have no value. We have a huge pharmaceutical industry here in Ireland. And if we could cross into you know, using wool in all its various applications, I think there could be a lot of potential there. And of course, as you said, I mean, these processes have moved a lot onwards in 100 years. So scouring yeah. today versus scouring 100 years ago or tanneries 100 years ago. I mean, the tanneries 
the good tanneries today are much better than they used to be. Um, something something I just remembered, you mentioned um, the hand-weaving um, or foot-weaving um, uh, Harris Tweed. When I was there, I was looking at these uh, looms and I was thinking, wow, just put a sneaky little motor on there. But apparently the inspectors come by several times a week and if you're mm-hmm. caught motorising your loom, you're out for good. That's no, I it. think it'd be I think it would be quite easy to catch you as well because uh you know how much yarn how much uh, cloth you've produced in a week <laughs> would be quite obvious pretty soon I think but yeah there are uh, still a handful of hand weavers left in Donegal and uh it, it's a really interesting thing to see it's it's a really beautiful process but maybe the way the the legal side of Harris Tweed could be applied other places because Harris Tweed's the only one where there's a legal protection and it has to be woven in a certain way in the Hebrides to be called Harris Tweed and so forth. Mm. But Donegal and others don't have that and hence mm. not, not so special, not so protected. Um, I well, I would say, I would say just as special, just not legally protected. Um, yes. Uh, and the Galway wool, you know, with the kind of aim and the dream of creating uh, a tweed uh, with Galway wool and exclusively Irish wool, the dream is to get, um, I think it's called a geographical uh, protection. It's under EU law, um, certain like, kinds of cheese and you like know, champagne. Very, yes, champagne and various kinds of uh, products from around Europe have this. And I think going forward, that will have to be done because we have to stop the misrepresentation. If you're saying you're using Galway wool, you better be able to back it up. And as it turns out, you know, I've had a few interesting calls with researchers recently. There are ways to trace wool very accurately back to the farm um, in terms of the chemical structure and things like that. So I think the uh, the era of misrepresentation will be coming to a close shortly. It's a Galway CSI on the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope they. Uh, I hope they manage to make something really uh, special with it, and uh, and it works out. Yeah, I hope so too. It's, think, it is early days. I think wool is uh, is gets getting such a rotten deal these days. I know how much is thrown away here in Norway because it's it's just not worth taking it in and delivering it to the the place that handles it. They just yeah. dig it down because it's not worth the fuel. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's that's that's the same uh, case in Ireland, and in a lot of ways, it it makes it quite difficult to research how much wool is actually produced in Ireland because a lot of it is not collected. It simply doesn't pay to collect it. And uh, I'm shocked to see even we have some sort of quite big fashionable brands in Norway who make wool coats and so forth. And they brag about how um, sustainable they are and so forth. And then you sort of read their labels and it's uh, 30% polyester or or even worse. And I'm thinking all that wool lying in that field out there and this was the best you could do? Mm, it is quite shocking. And I think... Uh once people start to realize, you know, the, st- the a little bit deeper into the story. And that's why it's so important to approach uh, slow fashion and fashion in general from the ground up, not, not from the item of clothing back, because it's much easier to trace um, where the raw materials go rather than retrospectively. <laughs> So this is what I'm focused on, and this is why I uh, 
spend a lot of time doing farm tours and stuff like that because uh, you really get a feeling for um, the possibilities of what is grown in your own country and also the challenges as well. And hopefully we can address them, you know, going forward. That is a very interesting aspect. I hadn't even thought about starting at that end and following it onwards. And I think that does also give you a greater appreciation of just how long the process is from sheep to coat, say, how many steps there are underway, how many people and companies and travel is involved. Mm. And I think one of the things, um, well, that really informed me about it is, uh, you know, crafts, uh, you know, turning your hand to knitting or crocheting and, you know, actually investigating where the yarn comes from, but also how long it takes to make something. Yes. It's extremely labor intensive. And I think in a lot of ways that is the missing key in, you know, sort of consumer education is just how labor intensive clothing production is. In a lot of ways, we sort of have this idea, and it's not a random idea, it was definitely suggested to us by someone that clothing production has become a lot more efficient uh, in the past, you know, 30, 40 years. But apart from a number of exceptions, such as, you know, very expensive Japanese knitting machines where you put in yarn and a jumper comes out, you know, half an hour later, for the vast majority of cases, it requires a huge amount of human hands. It requires a huge amount of human labor. And that is one of the ways in which they hide the true cost of a garment. I mean, I can see how we're led to believe it, because when you mm. can go out and buy something that is so unbelievably cheap, and then you try to walk back the cost, and take away the VAT, and then you think, well, there has to be something for travel, there's a bit of... Uh, and then you realize that... Well, this the maths don't work at all. <laughs> yeah, the math doesn't math, and that's true. And uh, I think the more the more people realize that, and you know, the more questions they will have for these extremely low fast fashion prices. You know, and and oh, well, obviously this is a much bigger topic, but you know, one of the reasons um, we have to talk more about this is because. By accepting the reality that clothing can cost five euros, we have allowed our own wages to slip to the point where we can't actually afford, the average industrial wage cannot actually afford clothing made in your country. So this is becoming a major challenge for slow fashion, which is you know starting to emerge in Ireland is how to make it affordable. And the fact is, you can't compete with fast fashion. There is no way that you can actually produce a garment for that little. I guess what you really have to compete with is the mindset that yep. you need that many garments. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to buy five new outfits every week. You can mm -hmm. have two outfits a year, maybe. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem lies. Not that small companies in in Ireland just are unable to make trousers for three pounds a pair or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Bonkers. And and one of the reasons you know we've sort of tended to um, you know as a society to head towards this model of overconsumption is because the clothing you know which is 
available to us in, in large part is of terrible quality. And, you know, they talk about, you know, the supposed consumer who only wears it once and throws it away. But there are a lot of fast fashion pieces where you wear it once and it simply falls apart. You know, it's of such poor quality that it could never stand up to the kind of wear, the everyday wear. And uh, I guess that's why in terms of slow fashion, we have to talk about cost per wear. You know, if you buy a coat for 300 pounds and you wear it for the next 10 to 20 years, that turns out to be quite cost effective. However, if you buy something for five pounds and you only wear it once and it falls apart, that turns out to be a very expensive way to purchase clothing indeed. Mm. And at such low costs, really, you don't need to wear it once even. I mean, you had that Mm. little moment of joy when you bought it and then you can just throw it away and never think about it again. Mm. And there's something so interesting about what you said there with the little moment of joy, you know, I guess in a consumerist society, they've really hacked human psychology, you know, they, they really have it perfectly set up. But that's one of the things slow fashion talks a lot about is a much more considered way of investing in clothing. It's not an impulse purchase. It's an investment. Maybe you have to save a little bit, um, you know, but ultimately it is worth it. And the joy you get out of a garment that lasts for that long is, it's it's a lot better, I can tell I mean, you. I can definitely see the attraction in buying something that is made just for me, that will fit me and is made just mm-hmm. how I wanted it. Because, I mean, even quite expensive stuff that you buy in the shops isn't guaranteed to do that. But I blame the internet for a lot of this. So if I may go off on a slight rant here, uh, I mean, marketing has been given its magic bullet through um, uh, Google, Facebook, knowing more about us than we know ourselves. So adverts are targeted to such an astonishingly accurate degree. Uh, Marketing is sort of surgical almost. But there's also online shopping, which has a lot to answer for. And I, this only struck me this summer when I visited some remarkably lovely shops in England where you went in, you touched stuff, you looked at it, tried it on. There was a nice atmosphere there and there was an experience. But there was also that very critical eye in that you wouldn't even try something on if it didn't feel right or look right. And if you tried it on and it didn't fit right, you wouldn't buy it. But online, you'll see colour photos of something probably hanging on some lovely looking model. Oh my, that looks fine. And you read the all the text and oh, yes, wonderful. And it's so easy, just click, click, click. And there's a parcel on the way. I mean, whenever I buy something online, I almost immediately after <laughs> clicking buy, feel buyer's remorse, which is pretty sad. <laughs> but the thing is, once it's on its way, you're less likely to return it unless that place has a super solid return things where you can basically just order stuff and just send it back. And that makes it so much easier to buy stuff you don't want or need. But if you're going into a shop, feeling it, looking at it, trying it on, that slows the whole process down and you actually have to think about what you're doing. Mm. So I propose Mm. to abolish all online shopping. Well, as somebody who sells things online, I'm gonna I'm gonna pump the brakes on that a little bit. <laughs> um, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, and you are correct. I mean, it is the uh, the advent of of 
the easiest form of impulse buying, which has really fueled a lot of consumption. But there are other factors, of course, um, you know, the fact that people have had disposable income and the fact that, you know, a lot of these big fashion brands offer, uh, you know, delayed payments and, you know, various very unethical financial instruments like oh, yes, that. Yes, lots of trickery. Oh, lots of trickery. Um, and yes, of course, you have to be conscious when you're an online user, shall we say, that um, you are a simple ape heading into uh, a mechanism which is based on billions of dollars of research and uh, your data is absolutely weaponized against you. Mm. And, you know, every time you accept cookies, uh, your every move is tracked on those websites and aggregated. And that's why the ads are so targeted. Um, but you are right. The answer to this is that slow fashion thrives in reality. And we need slow fashion stores where people actually have the real life experience of trying it on of perhaps meeting the person who made it and of really thinking and feeling about this item of clothing before they purchase do we have those slow fashion stores they're few and far between it is definitely something to aim for and uh, definitely something we're we're working towards here in ireland yeah because what we well, we don't have slow fashion stores. We have lots of high fashion stores, which are kind of the same same thing, although different. But they're the sort of stores that sell the stuff people dream about. They'll stand queued up outside with, with a guy in the door, sort of letting them in one or two at a time so they can wander around and gaze at stuff. And most of that stuff is garbage. Mm. But in people's mind, it is so desirable. But if that could sort of be tweaked a bit to be selling good stuff. Mm. I think the, the conclusion myself and I think a lot of designers and people who, who know about this, who know about the amount of labor that goes into something, we've reached a new definition of luxury. What is luxury? Is okay. it something which is made, you know, for very little with huge margins, which is packaged very nicely to you and sold to you as an experience and as a status symbol? Or is it something which is made locally by someone you've met to an extremely high standard using local materials? I think it's the second. Uh, well, that's, well, I mean, that's what you'd like to think, isn't it? But I don't think, I mean, I hate to, I hate to say something against this, but high fashion has managed to tap into something in humans whereby something nasty has been made in somewhere you don't know by someone who probably wasn't paid much and by sticking say a gucci label on it they can charge insane amounts of money for it and people still want it and i think the tricky part is getting the person who's seduced by that to accept that something made by this local person who they actually know who lives down the road and makes mm. such and such is actually more valuable and I, i'm not sure how how we're going to get people to actually flip over that and mm. i, I well, think part of it might be to just expose how crummy this the, the brand high fashion brand stuff is and how manipulative it is absolutely and there is a room for those conversations but at the same time 
we cannot give any more airtime to fast fashion. At a certain point, we have to start talking about the positives and we have to start developing a desire within consumers for what is truly a very exclusive and luxurious industry, uh, you know, within your local communities. How to do that? Well, you know, we've, we've seen many multinational companies do this effortlessly with, you know, the beautiful stores, the experience and, you know, keeping up with the Joneses effect. But I think slow fashion has an opportunity not only to become something that people desire, but also to do it in an ethical way. I mean, there is a whole conversation to be had with ethical website copy and ethical marketing and things like that. But there is absolutely a way to create desire and appeal to people in a way which does not trigger them, which does not make them feel like they're left out, uh, which, you know, creates a desire to do good and ultimately support their communities. And that's what we want to do. Ultimately, slow fashion has a marketing problem. Mm. That's a, it's a crying shame. Uh, we have this lovely local um, eco shop on a farm and they sell all sorts of uh, food products and household products and also clothes, linen clothes and so forth. And that makes it such a lovely environment where all the good stuff comes together and it totally changes my mindset whenever I'm there because I can see all the alternatives mm -hmm. to all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And the woman who has it does such an excellent job in bringing new stuff in, presenting it, and makes it such a personal experience. Uh, I'm not going to say go so far that I'm looking at women's linen clothes for myself, but I do always be tempted. But I think that gives it more value it uh, heightens the experience i think mm. i mean I've, I've brought it up several times in other conversations is slow fashion a good name for it isn't fashion what we need to sort of get away from mm. yeah i i talked to a guy in barcelona i think and uh he had a wonderful answer to this question he said it's not slow fashion at all. It's not slow. Somebody can come into my store and I can make them a belt in five minutes and they can walk away with it. So that is, you know, the, the fastest delivery time you could imagine, <laughs> you know. And I, I've thought about that a lot. We are ultimately left with a language problem. And um, it's really, and I've thought a lot about this, it's really about slow living. And I suppose that's why the stores, like you were talking about, you know, which present food and fiber, you know, alongside are so effective because really slow fashion as a movement has a lot less to do with fashion and a lot more to do with a lifestyle. And in a way, the conversation becomes too broad for most settings, but ultimately it requires a change in in how we live our lives, in where we source our food, how we grow our food, how we source our clothing, and how we grow the materials to make the clothing, you know, how you launch into that in a 15-minute interview on a local radio station, I haven't quite cracked that, you know. Oh, no, the density of ideas would be overwhelming. <laughs> and of course, a lot of this is also a very privileged way of living. Well, it's how our ancestors lived, and I wouldn't necessarily say they were privileged. 
No, they probably weren't. But I see there's a shop in the UK, uh, which is a bit similar to our local shop. And I noticed when I was there, it's um, it's in the Cotswolds, a place called Dalesford's. Uh, it was very fancy, very attractive, organic, key-type thing. There loads of Range Rovers outside, which tells you everything about the sort of people who were able to shop there. But really, it was kind of a throwback to how shops were before, before the massive supermarkets, where you went to the butchers and they had local meat. You went to the vegetable store, the greengrocers, and they had local stuff. But now it's all sort of packaged as a lifestyle option, I suppose, which is very sad because part of the slow living would be to go back to the smaller scale of things where you had the village tailor, you had the greengrocer, the butcher, and things were just a bit smaller. People weren't travelling all over the place for the experience. Mm, Yeah. Well, I would say, yes, there is privilege in a certain interpretation of that lifestyle, that kind of, uh, you know, suburban take on it where you grow nothing. You buy one organic carrot, you make, you know, a bowl of organic soup. You know, it's, it becomes, it becomes more of a, once again, it almost becomes a status symbol rather than a way of life, you know, and I absolutely do not want to promote that, you know, of all the fiber, you know, farms producing various kinds of fiber that I've visited around Ireland. I think almost all of them are also organic food farms. Now, I grow organic food myself. We have a farm here, but you know, it's just food. Yeah. It's it's not technically, you know, organic or needs any other label. It's simply food mm-hmm. as our grandparents and great-grandparents would know it. Mm-hmm. And what has been sold to us as the mainstream answer to our need for food three times a day bears less and less resemblance to what was historically known as food. So is it a privilege to return to a way of life which, and often a much more difficult way of life that your great grandparents may have known? It's, it's a decision which I don't think people take lightly. And yes, it may require initial investment and people sacrifice a lot to get their families back on the land. But if you can do it and if you see value in it, there are very small scale and very cheap ways to do this as well. Ultimately, what you find, I think, is that the modern lifestyle, in fact, requires more investment and more time, you know, with the the endless uh sort of impulse purchases, uh, the the debt which is racked up through, you know, unpaid credit card debt and things like that, and ultimately the um, the constant desire for consumption. It's an unsustainable way to live in terms of your impact on the planet, but also financially. And I think if people were to slow down, reduce consumption, and attempt to grow things and, you know, support local farmers – you're going to find it's ultimately a more cost-effective way to live too. That is something we see here when connecting with our local eco-communities and so forth, that if you're not buying the eco-lifestyle through those who provide it as a lifestyle option, 
but can connect to, say, the farmers and the producers, it is not an expensive way. We buy meat and vegetables from Farms Direct, which is a lot cheaper than buying it through the supermarket. Mm. I guess we are kind of privileged to have made these connections because it took us a long time to to build up that Mm. Uh, because society today isn't made for that way of living to work, especially Mm. not here in Norway where we have three major supermarket chains who have a a stranglehold on the situation. Mm -hmm. But it is very satisfying. Yeah, and you you get that satisfaction, and when you invest your time and money directly onto family farms, you're rewarded with produce which has been handled by you know as few middlemen as possible, often no middlemen, and you also are rewarded with a very strong relationship, and that is something that we need to build within our communities, where you are not simply a faceless consumer, and they are not simply a farmer stuck up on a billboard on the side of one of these three supermarket chains, Mm. but you become humanized to each other and you realize that in fact, maybe we don't need the middleman. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter gomology, and it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. A while back, you mentioned three things we would talk about. Uh, wool, linen, and I've completely forgot the third, but could we go there now? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah, the uh, the network of slow fashion designers, which have popped up in, in Ireland over the last couple of years. There's a lot to talk about there. Um, I suppose, you know, I've been writing articles for a good few months now, and um, I've come in contact with a lot of people who are doing really interesting things in their own little niches. And I've noticed uh, quite a positive thing is that they often recommend other people for me to talk to, that there's this collaborative effort. And I see it with people who are running, you know, own brand sort of slow fashion stores that when they have the retail space, they, you know, invite other designers and other um, local artists to sell within their retail spaces and it's a much more it's a healthier uh, sort of collaborative atmosphere and that is something i look for when i interview designers do they recommend other designers you know that is one of the things that makes me very happy um i just uh launched a slow fashion print magazine which has gone extremely well and thank you for your order by the way and the first issue uh was launched in august and it profiled three young designers and I think that's one of the most interesting things about what is happening with slow fashion in Ireland at the moment is the age profile of the people who are involved in it. They're often quite young and they're often people who have um, perhaps switched career or have uh, changed careers away from the very mainstream sort of path after fashion school, which is, you know, to work directly for fast fashion, essentially. They have rejected this and in essence, have returned home uh, to the land and to a uh, a simpler way of living. And uh, I really hope they are richly rewarded for their ethical decisions. I was talking to uh, Neve about that a few episodes ago, because she took a, a different way out of fashion school. 
Um, all her classmates were going over the road to work for Boohoo, etc. And I was completely astonished. I went, why would you want to do that? But I guess it's different why people go into this is, well, there's different reasons for it. Maybe you start out not wanting to make a certain thing, but being in the fashion industry as portrayed in many TV series and films and whatever as this super glamorous uh, thing. Mm, I had a conversation with a university lecturer who um, lectures in, in fashion design in the UK, and uh, she was talking about this uh, this exact problem. Um, you know, fashion has a, quite a reputation of being a cutthroat industry, and that starts off quite early. There is very little collaboration seen within fashion schools. You know, a lot of students feel unsupported throughout their time in fashion school. But when they graduate, you know, for instance, in the UK, I think 4,000 fashion students graduate each year to several hundred jobs awaiting them. So already at the outset, from the very beginning, you are essentially pitted against other young designers. And those jobs, if you do manage to get them, are inevitably in either luxury, high-end fashion, or in what we more commonly call fast fashion. And there is definitely a, an element of disappointment, even among those who get the jobs, uh, where it is definitely does not live up to the sort of glamorous lifestyle in which they had uh, perhaps been imagining. And uh, instead, you're simply designing you know, bank uniforms or children's jerseys for, you know, a supermarket chain or something, you know, it, it's, it doesn't reflect their creativity and uh, their aspirations and often their ethics. And a small minority of people uh, either have the resources or the courage to actually go out on their own, which is extremely difficult because uh, fashion school, uh, much like medical school, does not include any business training, which is an extraordinary thing to send uh, young designers and and uh, people in their early twenties out into the world without any idea of how to file taxes or start a business or even any of the business basics, you know. So yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of struggle that awaits people who choose that path, um, and there is a high failure rate of you know small businesses in any industry, and you do have to be aware of that when you're going in. However. Um, if you are passionate enough and if you are stubborn enough and if you don't give up, there is a reward in in producing, being one of a handful of people producing something in your own country and producing something really unique. You know, when these young designers strike out on their own, um, they have a lot of creative freedom. Yes, you have to uh, listen to your audience and yes, you are, you know, constrained by uh, the materials you choose to use and things like that. But often what I've found anyways is that these young designers, free from uh, oversight, shall we say, are producing really beautiful things which would perhaps not get produced, you know, if they were working for a fast fashion company. They're, the pieces are too labor intensive. Uh, they often use, um, you know, vintage or dead stock fabrics, which, you know, often you end up with a product which is one of one. And for me, as a you know, as a researcher and a writer, and and as a consumer, I suppose of slow fashion, that is a huge plus. But for someone who was purely looking at this from a business angle, they might have some other ideas, you know. Oh yeah, 
needs to scale up, needs to have marketing plans. Yeah. How, how are you going to grow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I think there's a lot of mileage in getting uh, fresh new ideas in from people who haven't been overly educated in how things should be, but maybe come mm. from a vantage point of where accidents can happen, random impulses can come, and interesting new things can pop up. Yeah, and they do. Um, I think a lot of these designers are simultaneously treading a line of respecting the traditional crafts, uh, which they are continuing while creating new things. And it's it's a difficult it's a difficult line to tread. You know, you're always going to piss someone off, but on the upside, uh, you you do have the capacity to produce something really unique, which. Um, People are going to spot, and they're going to want, they're going to want to wear. And of course, with the world being as connected as it is these days, you do have impulses coming in from all over the world all the time. So you might be doing something traditional in Ireland, but you might have seen something interesting being done in South America or Eastern Europe or wherever, which you mm. then mix into things. Yeah, I think well, what you're talking about really is the best form of globalism. You know, it's 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 real education coming in contact with um, you know, artistic ideas and and methods and ways of production from other countries and yes, uh you know, the internet has provided a huge amount of opportunity in that regard, but Ireland in a way had that for a long time because it's um it's a unique place and it attracts people from all over the world and if you look at a lot of the people who um you know are in Ireland doing interesting things often they've lived abroad or uh, they they come from different countries and and they bring a, a very different skill set and and a way of looking at things to the to the Irish fashion scene you know of the people you've spoken to in Ireland so far who would you say is the most interesting? Mm. <laughs> that's, a, that's an awfully bad question because every, everyone else would then be regarded as uninteresting. But uh, oh my goodness! I, I just wanted you to pick out one example of someone you've spoken to who you could talk a bit about. And mm. well, let me see. Um, I guess you know. I could say as a disclaimer that the most recent interviews are top of mind. So we'll go with that as a disclaimer. Okay. But uh, uh, I recently had a conversation with, and I haven't written the article yet, uh, with a lady called Helly Helsner. And uh, she is a bronze uh, sculptor, a jeweler, an artist, and a slow fashion designer, I suppose you could say. And this woman had an extremely interesting story in it. She's originally from Denmark, I think. And um, she has a very a very different way of looking at the production of, of clothing and jewelry, which I found very interesting. Um, when I was at that farm in Northern Ireland, um, you know, picking flax and... Uh, as you do, yep. As you do on a normal Saturday. <laughs> um, we were standing up on the hill, uh, you know, it's sort of drumlin country and... Uh, these fields are ridiculously steep, you know, I'd be terrified to drive on them, never mind walk on them. But um, uh, we were standing up on top of this hill and uh, they pointed out across the way that, um, oh, over there in that direction is Ireland's only gold mine. 
And uh, now I'd read about this place before, but what I hadn't read about was what they told me about the environmental pollution uh, from gold mining and even small-scale gold mining. So um, Ireland is, of course, famous for its jewelry and its, you know, very fine uh, early medieval filigree um, gold work and stuff like that. But a lot of Irish gold, it's a bit of a mystery where it came from uh, because uh, we don't necessarily have a lot of gold in Ireland, and a lot of the gold which seemed to be used historically was uh, found in rivers, uh, you know, sort of just plucked out, it was washed out by rivers and, and found, and I suppose a lot of it was probably imported as well. However, there are a few deposits in Ireland, and really only a handful, and, and one is commercially active at the moment. And uh, they are producing Irish gold. Now, as a person who's, you know, obsessed with Irish production, you would imagine that this was a brilliant idea. And and I had researched, is there any jewellery made with gold from Ireland? And there is. There are, there are a handful of people uh, using it. However, when you talk to locals, you get a much different idea of the actual impacts of gold mining. And this is what I mean about returning to the farm or to the soil and, and, you know, looking at the industry from that perspective. And uh, when you start to look into even small-scale mining like that, the release of mercury and cyanide into rivers and stuff is absolutely devastating to local wildlife. So I began to think about, okay, jewelry is not going to go away anytime soon, the, the consumer desire for jewelry. How could we make this as sustainable as possible? So I started looking into, it was kind of the same path as, uh, you know, my clothing journey, I started looking into vintage jewelry and there are some wonderful um, uh, shops who deal in, in quite valuable historic uh, jewelry in Ireland and uh, also jewelry which is made from uh, recycled gold and silver. There are some wonderful jewelers who are doing that sort of stuff in Dublin. And when I talked to Helle about her feelings on this topic, she said, um, yes, she had encountered that and the way she gets around it is uh, by using uh, offcuts uh, of of bronze from various industrial um, and uh, you know other sculptures and stuff, and using as little as possible, and she's actually actively um, you know turned down large scale projects, which could be quite lucrative because she simply didn't want to take that many resources from the land. Now that's a very different way of looking at things. She told me she had um, been down in South America and. Uh, she was at some sort of retreat and, you know, the, the guy running it was a Guatemalan shaman or some sort of story like that. And uh, he asked her what she did. She said she was a sculptor. And he said, oh, I, I'm not very fond of you people. And uh, they had a little conversation and uh, she got to see the impact of true mining in South America. And if that wouldn't change your mind about sustainability, <laughs> nothing would. Mm. And her, her way of... Um, her way of producing uh, jewelry, it's, it's commission based, um, and, you know, her own artistic, um, ideas brought into reality. But, you know, with people working with gold and silver, the, the metal is so precious that every drop, every bit of dust must be gathered and everything. But the bronze is, of course, a little less valuable, but it has in, you know, value. And, uh, she looks at the, the dust that falls while she's working on something as it being returned to the earth, she's giving back. It doesn't necessarily have to be captured and that this is a much more organic um, way of producing art, that it's a, it's a sort of give and take, not just a take. 
And uh, this is reflected in her work as well. Her her jewelry is sculptural, inspired by natural forms, and you know, extremely organic in the way it um, it turns out. Somehow, her philosophy is in the jewelry, which I find extremely interesting. Now, she is a multi talented lady and has lectured in art and you know teaches art in prisons and all sorts of things like that. And she had a long history of knitting and producing these beautiful things. And she began to use uh, organic Irish wool from a farmer, which, uh, who I know. And, uh, she produced these beautiful, like, uh, you know, throws or wraps or whatever you want to call them, um, using Irish wool. And, uh, this she felt was in keeping with her philosophy of how she makes jewelry with this give and take and developing uh, a relationship with the material, you know, and um, that was quite an interesting conversation. <laughs> mm. well, I mean, there's so many interesting people all around that uh, just need to seek them out. Who do you have coming up in the next issue of the magazine? Ooh, well, the next issue of the magazine is uh, focuses on the story of Irish wool. So we explore it through you know, academics, um, farmers, and the handful of designers who are using it. So uh, I have a very in-depth, lovely interview with Blana Gallagher, who set up the Galway Wool Co-op, um, and then an interview with a lady named Sandra King, who has been instrumental in using Irish wool in crafts. Uh, she is an American lady who moved to Ireland a few years ago and um, wanted to continue her own practice of uh, crochet and, you know, made the naive mistake initially thinking that sheep in Ireland would mean easily available local wool. She was quickly educated oh. and, uh, and, st <laughs> <laughs> and started, started spinning and essentially, you know, she got her own flock of sheep and, uh, she's been really instrumental in, in teaching a lot of younger people, uh, how to process yarn. And she, uh, she helped a young gentleman in, uh, Galway essentially set up his own small scale scouring plant, which is really good news. Um, so he can process uh, fleece um, entirely within Ireland. Uh, we also have an article with Claire McGovern, who's a really interesting lady. She's uh, has a fine arts degree from Ireland, um, moved to the U.S. to San Francisco uh, to uh, deal deal in fine arts, museum curation, things like that, ended up putting on exhibitions of Irish design and realized um, there was a gap in the market essentially for Irish wool rugs. And uh, Claire McGovern actually set up her own supply chain and actually managed to create these intensely beautiful um, Irish wool rugs, which are made in Ireland and then exported to, uh, you know, high-end clients in, in New York and, uh, across the states and Europe. Other interviews include a lady called uh, Kit Christina Kiawatha, who is a researcher into Irish wool. She's just completing her studies at the moment. And uh, also an interview with a, a young farmer who is very early on. He actually invested his communion money into uh, into buying sheep. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he has been rewarded. Uh, I think he's uh, building a a flock which is um, uh, one of the most beautiful flocks in Ireland, I think, and he's producing a really unique 
organic Irish wool. And uh, yeah, there are some more interviews. Um, and uh, we also have an essay from a really talented uh, recent graduate from a UK fashion school. Her name is Abby Buckland. And if you get a chance to look up her final collection, or you can see it in the magazine, I would suggest you do so. She wrote a wonderful essay about the possibility of producing a carbon neutral uh, garments. Uh, so essentially, sweaters, which are not necessarily a, you know, a necessary evil environmentally, but which can actually um, contribute to the environment in a positive way. Wool, of course, can be a carbon sink. And um, she has a wonderful essay about that. Her final collection was profiled in uh, the Vogue Netherlands issue, I believe. And uh, she's extremely talented, and I'm so happy to publish her work. Um, the uh, the issue will be out on September 15th, and uh, yeah, I'm delighted to, to bring it to a wider audience. I'm looking forward to read about carbon neutral garments that are actually carbon neutral and not sort of made carbon neutral by buying carbon offsets mm, but that yeah. is a whole other tricky topic <laughs> Ooh, it is and you know in it she uh, she cites a lot of work by um i think the lady's name is rebecca burgess uh, she was the founder of fiber shed in california and uh, they've done a lot of wonderful work into creating um yeah truly sustainable uh you know, farm to fashion garments in California. And of course, the fiber shed uh, network is worldwide at the moment. And uh, yeah, there'd definitely be some, some interesting interviews in there, I'd say. Yeah, I will be uh, coming back to that uh, in uh, sometime soon. Now, mm. I will include a lot of links from you in the show notes here because you've mentioned so many people that people will want to look up. In closing, is there anything you'd like to mention? Anything we should have touched upon? Hmm. Well, I think, and you know, we talk about this in the next issue of the magazine, but as a consumer, and we touched upon this briefly in the podcast as well, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find uh, clothing which fits your style and also your values. And I think it's important to give consumers a little bit of confidence and uh, maybe some industry-level questions which they can start to ask people if they get a chance, you know. So let's start with wool, for instance. Uh, where was the wool grown? Where was the wool scoured? Uh, where was the wool processed or milled? And where was the wool turned into a garment? And if you want to follow those four questions, I think you'll be surprised by what you find. I think it's um, it's important to to find products which which fit your philosophy and which which reflect the kind of life you want to have and the kind of life you want your children to have. Um, obviously, we can all only do so much, but do the best you can. And uh, if you're curious, reach out to any designer or any slow fashion brand and the door will be open. They'll be delighted to uh, show you around and really be as transparent as possible with you. Some good words in closing there. I uh, wholeheartedly agree. This has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee. She's perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, 
wellrestad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as wellrestad. So, until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>